Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we'll be back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, looking at part 2 of Paul's Thanksgiving. We won't get through the full Thanksgiving, but we'll look at the next portion and see part two of Paul's Thanksgiving as a pattern for our priorities. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But before we begin, uh, let me just ask the Lord to make our time fruitful in his word. Lord, we need your word, and we are thankful for it. But we also know we need your illumination that we might understand it rightly. So as we come now to to seek to understand your word, help us to understand it correctly through your illumination, but also help us to apply it well. May our minds be shaped through that mind renewal process to be conformed to the model for our priorities we see here in uh, this Thanksgiving. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we started looking at this Thanksgiving. It's a Thanksgiving of Paul about the Thessalonians that he shares with the Thessalonians, but it's a Thanksgiving that really is directed to God. Paul's thanking God for the Thessalonians and shares that with them for their encouragement. And this Thanksgiving serves as a model for us. Obviously, it can function as a model for our thanksgiving, how we ought to give thanks, the kinds of things for which we ought to give thanks. But we talked about last week that as Paul's thanksgiving is a window into his priorities, we can see in what he gives thanks for, what he values highly, it can also become a model for our priorities. In this This reordering of our priorities according to God's priorities is just a part of this mind renewal process. The mind renewal process, our minds being shaped away from what we used to be in the flesh to the new man we have become is is a foundational part of our growth and transformation as believers, growing into be mature Christ followers. So our goal this morning will be to continue studying this Thanksgiving and to apply it by making the kinds of things that Paul prioritizes to be high priorities for us. So let's start by just reading again 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read 2 through 7. Paul writes, We give thanks to God always concerning you, concerning all of you, as we make mention of you in our prayers, because we are unceasingly remembering your work of faith, and your labor of love, and your perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And we're giving thanks because, verse 4, we know, brothers beloved by God, your election. How do we know that? Verse 5, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and great confidence, just as you know what kind of men we were among you, for your sake. And, verse 6, a second way we know that you are God's elect, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord by receiving the word in great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, 
As a result, you became an example to all those who are believing in Macedonia and in Achaia. So we studied last week those first two lessons that we can learn from this thanksgiving. Lesson number one was the priority of thanksgiving. And we saw that priority of thanksgiving, for one thing, in Paul's letters. Secondly, in Paul's life. And thirdly, in his theology. And then the second lesson we learned from this thanksgiving is the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness. We saw that in three varieties. There was the work that's motivated by faith, the labor that's motivated by love, and the perseverance that's motivated by hope in Christ. And we saw that this fruitfulness in believers' lives was a high priority for Paul as coming through in this Thanksgiving, but we noted that we can see this everywhere in his life. These are the same things he's praying for. These are the same things he labors for and gives his life for. And just as those things are a high priority for Paul, insofar as they're being held up for us as a model for us, they should be high priorities for us as well. And this week, we're going to continue to the third lesson, which we find in verses 4 to 7. And lesson 3 is the priority of evidence of election. The priority of evidence of election, which we see in verses 4 through 7. Paul thanks God for the evidence in the lives of the Thessalonians that they are God's elect. They are among those whom God has mercifully chosen to save. It may initially seem a bit perplexing to read Paul suggesting that he can know who God's elect are. Paul, how, how, how could you know that? Doesn't only God know that? Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this verse here, verse 4, is, is really the main verse. Everything else that we're going to read in 5, 6, and 7 hangs on this, so we do need to understand it. And while it might initially seem a bit perplexing, it doesn't take much looking in to understand what it is that Paul's getting at here. We have no problem thinking in terms of sort of three steps that Paul just covers in one, in one grand leap. Paul goes directly from these evidences, which as we'll see is basically a transformed life. Believers living these lives transformed by the Spirit are these evidences, Paul says, of election. And that whole leap might seem difficult to us, but we can keep up with Paul if we'll just take, uh, take a stepping stone here in the middle being saving faith, trusting Christ, conversion, we might call it. Because we don't have any problem thinking in terms of, or we don't struggle to think in terms of a believer's transformation worked out by the Spirit being evidence of their faith. That's understandable to us. So we don't have any problem with understanding a believer's faith being evidence that God has chosen them. Surely those go together. All those who live lives that are transformed have trusted Christ. And all those who have trusted Christ are those he's chosen to do so. So that connection seems pretty simple when we take that stepping stone. And all Paul's doing is just connecting that right on through. That those who live transformed lives, not just any kind of transformation, the kind of transformation that's unique to Christians, the kind of transformation that only the Spirit can work. Wherever that's happening, we can know not only that that person's been converted, but obviously also beyond that, that they've been chosen by God. And so Paul is here thanking God 
for the evidence of their election, namely their transformed lives. And that's how Paul can say that he knows of someone's election. But why would this be a priority for Paul? These evidences of their election, I think generally speaking, we can understand what Paul's getting at here. If we just understand that it's, it's pretty much equivalent to evidences for their conversion, for the genuineness, we might say, of their conversion. Of course, that's something we would all thank God for when we see that someone who is professing faith in Christ is evidencing that that conversion, their faith, is genuine. Paul does, of course, go a bit beyond merely that conversion to their election. And so we'll come back to a moment. Why would he point to that and consider that? But for now, I just want you to get the main point. Paul's focused on this evidence that they genuinely are following Christ and he's giving thanks for it. So we could essentially read, read verse 4 to say, we thank God because we know that you have been genuinely converted. And we know this because, and then he continues on to those evidences in verse 5. And let me just say this morning that if you're hearing the word election, and that is a, a stumbling block to you, you're getting hung up on that, um, don't get hung up on that. We're going to be talking about Paul's priorities and this, this concept of election is simply kind of something he's mentioning as we move on. But I would hate for you to miss all that this model will teach us about our priorities just because you're hung up on that. So um, if that's where you find yourself, uh, just think in terms of this being evidences of conversion because the, what's added there with the election piece is only a small addition um, in terms of getting Paul's over overarching point. The main point is that Paul is thanking God for the evidence that their profession of faith is genuine. Paul's labored among them that they would trust Christ, and he has prayed for them that they would persevere. And so as Paul is hearing of the proof of that genuineness of their faith, he is understandably filled with thankfulness. And we too ought to highly value, just like Paul does, these evidences of the genuineness of a believer's faith. Because the proof of their genuineness is showing that despite all of these professions that seem to not last, that aren't genuine, that certain ones are. And when we see that, wow, that is encouraging, that is valuable, and ought to be a priority for us. But why does Paul, Paul go beyond merely their conversion to their election? Why does he appeal to that? Why not just say, thank God for the evidence of your conversion? Well, I think there's two reasons. Um, and we see Paul's priorities, more of Paul's priorities in, in what he says here. And it's a way in which we should imitate him in his priorities. First of all, it highlights the fulfillment of God's purpose to include Gentiles as equals with Jews in the church, in the new covenant people of God. We must remember that the New Testament church has any sort of functional division between Jew and Gentile removed. And that sounds normal to us, but that would not have been normal in the early church. They're used to the, the people of God the covenant people of God, being a place where it's primarily Jews. And if Gentiles come in, they come in really in many ways by becoming Jews. 
They, they can't come on equal footing as Gentiles. So this idea that in the church, that distinction is done away with is a bit surprising. It takes a while, as we see in the New Testament, for, for people to understand and, and, and accept. And that's true in theory. That's taught throughout the Bible. But we know that throughout that first century of Christianity, believers were struggling to, get, to catch up to that, for that to become a reality in the church. You might even think about the book of Galatians, where you see that Paul actually has to correct both Peter and Barnabas because they're beginning to forget this. They're beginning to reconstruct differences, distinctions between Jews and Gentiles and insisting that um, because they want to maintain the Old Testament Mosaic law, that they are going to eat with Gentiles. And they begin to, again, insert this division in the church. And Paul has to correct them. So that wasn't a mere given simply because, in theory, that's what Christ is working. It had to be brought about. And not only did Christ say this is what should be there, but he actually commissioned Paul in a unique way to bring this about. Paul says this was a stewardship given to him, that Jews and Gentiles would together make up the church. So with that broader context in mind about the way that that distinction is being removed, we notice that the language used here, not only the language of election, but, but also the language of brothers and the language of being beloved by God, these are all terms that Jews would naturally understand to relate uniquely to Jews, to Israel, as God's covenant people. And so naturally, as this covenant people now begins to include Gentiles, these same terms can extend to them as well. And here, in this predominantly Gentile church, Paul is seeing this Gentile inclusion in the people of God realized. And that thrills Paul's heart. The mission Christ gave him is being fulfilled. And so we see it overflowing in this thanksgiving. And while Paul's certainly thankful for anyone to be saved, his mission involves not only numbers, but in this sense of Jews and Gentiles, it involves diversity. He's not only interested in seeing more people trust Christ and uh, more churches planted, but he's eager to see both Jews and Gentiles saved, and where both are being saved in the same location, to see them coming together in, in one church and learning to navigate their differences together in that church so that they can exemplify in reality within the local church, the unity they have in Christ, the equal standing they have in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Christ died to remove that dividing wall, any kind of distinction between Jews and Gentiles, those ethnic divisions, that they would be done away with. And Paul is thanking God because in this Thessalonian church, Paul is seeing that Gentile inclusion for which Christ died become a reality. And now they all, Jew and Gentile alike, can equally have these, these labels applied to them. They are all brothers. Think about that. Paul, a Jew, can write to a church composed primarily of Gentiles and call them brothers. He can call them beloved of God. He can, he can call them the elect of God because they also now, on equal footing, belong to God as his covenant people. Thus, Paul, by going beyond their conversion to their election, 
using these words that are uniquely related to the covenant people of God, is drawing attention to the way that this this purpose of Christ, this mission of Christ is being fulfilled in the Thessalonian church. And he gives thanks for it. We see here that Paul's priorities aren't just in the big picture, in the generic, shaped to Christ's mission, but even in the nuances. Down to the details of what Christ is about, Paul's priorities are being shaped to that. And oh, that we might have a heart like that, where we aren't merely saying, Lord, I have my own agenda, so make changes to my priorities where you must, but otherwise leave things intact. No, rather, what we see in Paul here is a model of saying, Lord, I want my priorities to be totally and thoroughly shaped by yours. So I think the first reason why Paul draws attention to that, just to note that this, this nuance of Christ's mission, specifically Gentiles being brought into the covenant people of God, is being fulfilled, and that he can apply that term to a church that's primarily Gentile. A second reason I think he goes beyond simply referring to their conversion to their election is because by reminding the Thessalonians of God's sovereign initiative, it also assures them of his sovereign follow-through. By reminding the Thessalonians of God's sovereign initiative, it also assures them of God's sovereign follow-through. While conversion certainly involves God's sovereign initiative also, election must much more obviously highlights that. And because of God's sovereign initiative in their salvation, Paul and they can be sure that they're going to persevere to the end, that God's going to make sure they continue. These Thessalonians are in a context where there's a lot of pressure on them to turn away from following Christ. And it's comforting to know that their perseverance in the faith doesn't rest totally on them. That God has purposed to save them and to see them through to the end. In many ways, it's kind of like the comfort we get when we sing the song together, He will hold me fast. Our faith doesn't rest on ourselves God causes us to persevere in that faith. So we see in verse 4 that Paul is thankful for the evidences of their election because these evidences are confirming the genuineness of their faith. Of course, Paul would be thrilled about that. He knows that they will be spared from the wrath to come, as chapter 1, verse 10 says. Also, he's giving thanks for these evidences of their election because it's just reminding him that Christ's purpose to include Gentiles in the new covenant people of God is being fulfilled. It's becoming a reality. What Christ loves and what he died for is becoming a reality. And he's thanking God for these evidences of election because he can be sure that being elect, they will persevere to the end. So moving on from verse five, 4 to verse 5, we come to Paul's explanation of these evidences of their election, meaning he's going to say what, what it is that he's seeing that's this evidence. What, what is the evidence that we would look for to know that someone's genuinely converted? Well, Paul's going to share with us what he looks for. In verse 5, he gives what we might call a general evidence. The Spirit's power seen in conviction about the truth. 
the general evidence of the Spirit's power seen in conviction about the truth. So look at verse 5. I'm actually going to pick up the context from verse 4. Um, knowing, brothers beloved by God, your election, because, we know that because, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and great confidence, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the first thing Paul points to as evidence of their election is their response to the gospel. Their response to the gospel. He says that the gospel did not come to them in word only. For the gospel to come in word only would look like the gospel being proclaimed, but there being no response. There being no response because the Holy Spirit doesn't come alongside it and give new life to dead hearts as they hear the gospel. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the gospel going out in word only in terms of what those sharing the gospel have done. That's all we can do is share the word of the gospel. We can't do anything else. We can't guarantee any kind of response. Our responsibility is only to share that gospel. So for the word to come in word only is not necessarily a bad thing in terms of what the, those who are sharing the gospel are doing, but unless it's also accompanied by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, giving new life to the hearers so that they can respond in faith, there will be no response to the gospel however much it goes out in word. At least no genuine response to the gospel. And Paul is saying, and this is what's thrilling his heart and leading him to thanksgiving, is that's not what happened among you. The word going out, the gospel going out in word only, is not what you experience. Rather, the gospel came to the Thessalonians in word, and also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, in great confidence. Now, each of these three, understand exactly what he's referring to with each of these and how they relate. It's a bit vague, but it's clear enough that it's the opposite of coming in word only. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit works through the gospel message to grant new life. The power that accompanied the gospel message is most likely that power to grant new life, to cause people who are spiritually dead to become spiritually alive so they can respond to the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is the source of that power. He's the one who brings about that new life in dead hearts, bringing about the new birth, regeneration. And the Holy Spirit's work to give new life, to cause a response to the gospel, is evident in their confident faith in the gospel. Thus he can say it's not in word only, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and great confidence. They're confidently trusting in Christ. They're confident in the midst of persecution because they're confidently hoping in Christ's second coming. Sometimes it's easy to forget how desperately we need the Spirit to accompany the gospel as we share it. It's not merely that he can make the gospel a little more effective if he, if he happens to be around and to help out. And nothing happens unless he works. And this is because those with whom we share the gospel are not merely spiritually sick. They're spiritually dead. And they're unable to respond to the gospel unless the Holy Spirit gives them life. 
And if we don't keep that in mind, there are certain ditches we can go off into. One of them is we can begin to think that we have the power in ourselves to bring about a response in people. If only we can be creative enough. And we begin to get creative. We begin to get manipulative because we think that it's within our hands. Think about this little analogy here. Someone's sleeping in a bed, and you're tasked with making sure they get up out of bed. Well, if they're simply sleeping with enough creativity, you can make sure they get up, right? If they don't respond to the sheets being pulled off, if they don't respond to the light being turned on, they'll eventually respond to something like the bucket of cold water being poured on them. You can make sure they get up, right? No matter how sleepy they are. But if they're dead, all of that's going to do nothing. Nothing at all. And it's likewise when we share the gospel. We just don't have the power to bring about a response. And God doesn't expect us to. He expects us to be faithful in sharing the gospel. And another dynamic of remembering that is when we're sharing the gospel faithfully and we don't see responses, we don't need to get discouraged as though the, the responsibility for that non-response is on us. That's not our responsibility. We just continue sharing the gospel and we continue praying that the Lord would work through it. And there's great confidence and comfort in knowing that. That all we're expected to do is share the gospel. But when the Holy Spirit does choose to work through the gospel and give new life and give faith, the result will be evident. That spiritual life will have far-reaching effects as their lives begin to be transformed. And then Paul, notice at the end of verse 5, he adds on there this statement, just as you know what sort of men we were among you for your sake. And he seems to add this as just further confirmation of the genuineness of the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. And he does it by noting how he and Silvanus and Timothy conducted themselves while they were with them. But in what way does the conduct of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy among them confirm the genuineness of their conversion? Well, he may be referring to something similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. There, he says, Brothers, we know that the Spirit was working among you to make the gospel effective because there's no other explanation. We didn't come with any kind of persuasive speech. Paul says, you know, there was nothing impressive in me. I was a sight to behold. You, you would not have been convinced by me. And really, he says, the message I was preaching is something that to you, apart from the Spirit's working, is foolishness. So I'm not persuasive. The message doesn't naturally persuade. Therefore, the only way to explain your response, Corinthians, is by the Spirit's working. So Paul may have something like that in mind here, saying, I know that your conversion was genuine, that response, because you know what we were like among you. We weren't impressive. We weren't coming with some kind of attempts to be eloquent and to manipulate you or to spruce up the gospel to make it look nice. No, the fact that you responded is simply because the Spirit gave you life. Alternatively, Paul may be noting that the kind of conviction about the truth of the gospel that was evident in the Thessalonians mirrored the conviction 
of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Just as Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy proclaim the gospel to the Thessalonians amid great persecution and much opposition, so also, those the comparison, just as you know, so also the Thessalonians responded to the gospel amid much opposition. And they persevered in the gospel amid much opposition because of the conviction about the truth they had. So he's saying, you, you have in us almost a, a pattern of what it looks like for those who genuinely have been converted by the Spirit to live out that conviction. And, and you actually came pretty close to that pattern. Either way, Paul's saying that there's this genuineness about your conversion that is evident. The transformation in your life makes this clear. So simply stated, Paul says that he sees evidence that the Holy Spirit powerfully worked through the gospel to give the Thessalonians new life, evident particularly in the conviction they had about the truth. And this evidence of the Thessalonians' election, namely their conviction about the truth of the gospel, was something Paul valued highly. The believers, those who are professing faith in Christ, have strong convictions about the truth of the word of God is something he values. Not something, that's not something that they simply say by grandstanding, oh, of course I believe that, but it's evident in the way they live. As it was for the Thessalonians, standing faithful, continuing to share the gospel, even in the midst of opposition. And likewise, deepening convictions about the truth of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of fellow believers around us ought to be something we value highly and something we prioritize. And then moving from verse 5 into verses 6 and 7, Paul provides this second evidence of their election, which is modeling joy in highly distressing circumstances. Modeling joy in highly distressing circumstances. Highly distressing circumstances is a bit of a mouthful, but it seemed to be a helpful way to capture this great affliction language that many translations use, uh, because this word doesn't simply mean persecution. It, it, very generically, it means basically pressing, pressure, and it's obviously being applied metaphorically here to any kind of situation that's got a lot of pressure. And so this phrase, highly distressing circumstances, captures that well. Notice verse 6, picking up from the very beginning. We give thanks to God always for you because we know of your election. Because, verse 6, you became imitators of us and you became imitators of the Lord by means of receiving the word in great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, with the result that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and in Achaia. So Paul says that, Paul, uh, that the Thessalonians had imitated Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And that in so doing, they're also imitating Christ. And he has in mind not just generically how they imitated, likely they imitated them in many ways, but specifically he's focusing on their imitation in enduring, persevering in affliction and highly distressing circumstances with joy. We know that Paul certainly was an example of this kind of perseverance in the midst of opposition. Consider, for example, just from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, 
our entrance to you, that it was not in vain. But having suffered beforehand and been mistreated in Philippi, just as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God among, among much opposition. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, he also recounts the way he himself proclaimed the gospel in the midst of much opposition by saying, For also when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were about to be afflicted, just as it also happened, and you know. But what stands out here isn't just the way that Paul is a model for them and that they're enduring affliction, but that they do it with joy. The world's a hard place. Everyone endures affliction, not just believers. But what makes the way that Christians, Christ followers, endure that difficulty is that they can do it with joy. But that's not natural, and Paul knows that. And that's why at the end of verse 6, he points to the source of that. The source of that joy in the midst of affliction is the Holy Spirit. It's only because of the Holy Spirit at work in them that they could be joyful in these circumstances. And this concept of believers being joyful in the midst of affliction is not unique to this verse, as you know. We could go to many passages. Just focus on two others from Paul's letters. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes, And not only this, but also... We exult in our tribulations. And he goes on and explains why he exults in his tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then secondly, he draws attention to the same combination of believers being able to rejoice in the midst of great conflict, great affliction, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2, he writes, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, note, he's writing to the Corinthians about the churches in Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is located, along with the church in Philippi, the church of Berea, uh, but The church at Thessalonica would have been one of the principal churches here in Macedonia. So that's who he's writing about. And he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, that sounds severe, a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. Wow. That's like a clash of opposites. Their great ordeal of affliction, their deep poverty is overflowing with an abundance of joy and great generosity. Those are the types of realities that only the Spirit can produce. And then he continues in verse 7, showing how this imitation continues to another step. With the result that you became an example for all those who believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. So that chain of imitation continues, and it becomes quite evident that this kind of Enduring affliction with joy is is quite the hallmark of following Christ by the way that it just keeps going from from one group to another. It keeps being passed on as being one of the main things he's pointing to as evidence of conversion. It started with Christ, 
And it was modeled by Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And the Thessalonians see this in their lives and follow in that. And then reports about the way that they're enduring affliction with great joy is, is going out to other places. And they in those other places, elsewhere in Macedonia and a neighboring region of Achaia, they're hearing of this and they're following suit. Paul loved to see or to hear reports of believers persevering through affliction with joy. And that was so encouraging to him because he knows it can only happen by the work of the Spirit. He's not simply happy that they're suffering. He's happy to see that the genuineness of their conversion is being demonstrated. It's an evidence of their election. Do you value believers' joy in the midst of suffering? One way we can test ourselves on that is to ask, what is the first thing we pray for when a brother or sister in Christ is suffering? Is the first thing we pray for that the, the suffering would be removed from them? In the sense that we've completely forgotten that God was the one who brought that suffering to them with an intentional purpose in their life? Or is the first thing we pray that God would help them to rejoice in the midst of that suffering? knowing that that will be a blessing to them and that that will demonstrate the worth of Christ. Few things can demonstrate the worth of Christ like believers rejoicing in suffering. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, tells us to be ready for those times when people ask about the reason for our hope. When was the last time someone asked you about the reason for your hope? Do you ever, you're standing in the, the checkout line at Lowe's and someone taps you on the shoulder? Hey, I can see your hope. Tell me why. Why are you so hopeful? No, it's, it's because of radical things, things that stand out, things the world cannot comprehend, like rejoicing in the midst of suffering that causes people to ask that. And Peter's urgent reminder that we be ready for those circumstances begins to fade. We, we don't feel it's quite so urgent because no one's asking us. But if we can learn, as the Spirit works in us, to rejoice in the midst of suffering, they will be asking and we'll be able to say, oh, I can tell you the, the hope. The hope is Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his coming again. So the second evidence of election is modeling joy in highly distressing circumstances. The priorities Paul models here are certainly quite different than our priorities, at least when we come to faith in Christ. But God so graciously does not leave us there. He, through his Spirit, works on us. He begins that mind renewal process. He's changing the way we think. He's changing our values. He's changing our priorities. And he's teaching us to value the kinds of things we've seen here. We've seen a variety of things here. The priority of thanksgiving, the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness, and the priority of evidences of election. And then under each of those, we've seen various sorts. But all of that can be summarized simply as the priority of spiritual maturity in believers' lives. The priority of spiritual maturity in believers' lives. So as you think about this sermon this week and last week in this text and the way that Paul's thanksgiving here functions as a model for us, 
what we prioritize, what we pray for, what we thank God for, what we give our time and our money to, allow that priority, the priority of spiritual maturity in believers' lives, starting with your own life, going to fellow church members here, others closer to you like your spouse, their believer, children, but certainly one another here in the body and and praying for those things, working toward those things so that our lives look like Paul's in the sense of making this a priority. The Lord desires to conform our thinking, including our values and priorities, to this model. And in all that we do, it should be manifest as these priorities are changing and reflecting, testifying to the value of spiritual maturity in believers' lives. So, three lessons that we can learn from this. The priority of thanksgiving, the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness, and the priority of evidence of election. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for models like this because we know we need them. We don't naturally gravitate to prioritizing what we ought to. We know we certainly didn't before you saved us. And Lord, we know that even after you have saved us, we continue to walk according to the pattern of the old man. We continue to prioritize those same things, and we need you to work in us. And we know that you work not just around our mind, but through our mind, as we see models like this, and we understand what it is we're to be pursuing. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us, that this wouldn't simply be something that works around our priorities and affects us at an external level, such that we simply make a careful note about the things we pray for and thank God for, such that our priorities begin to look like this, when in reality we're just suppressing what are the greatest priorities of our heart and elevating on our prayer list the things that are subsidiary priorities. Rather, Lord, make those changes at the core of who we are, that it naturally flows out of us. And then may it manifest itself in all of these ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.